Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and I got picked up at the train station the other day by my next guest, curious to see if we had any overlap. That's because my next guest is marketing legend Seth Godin. You know what? An overlap emerged very quickly. When Seth was in high school, his English teacher wrote in his yearbook, you are the bane of my existence, and you will never amount to anything. When I was in high school, I had an English teacher who said the same thing. Now, to all you high school English teachers out there who are saying, ho ho, I would never write anything like that in a student's yearbook, just remember, any student who makes you feel that way just may see the world a little bit differently. Seth went on to write a string of bestsellers, must-reads for anyone interested in marketing and anyone interested in life. These include The Purple Cow, Lynchpin, All Marketers Are Liars. Cross that out. All marketers are storytellers. His blog is like a tropical waterfall of thought that we can all luxuriate in every day. And he lives his life underneath pillowy white clouds of thought, like, would I be missed if I were gone? You don't want to miss this next hour or so. This earth is blessed to have Seth Godin on it. Want to thank Squarespace for making all this happen. You're going to hear Seth decode the art of creating a website. And nobody lets you do it more beautifully than Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, for 10% off your website or domain name. Get the most out of yourself with Squarespace. And ZipRecruiter. Later on, you're going to hear the story of Jeff Ford. Jeff was a Marine, got ill, was out of work for five years. And his story is going to make you understand how amazing ZipRecruiter is. He's going to tell you how ZipRecruiter changed his life. If you're looking to hire, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and get a free trial. Just enter your job description, and with a single click, you'll have qualified candidates within 24 hours. Take it from Jeff. Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and I am with marketer extraordinaire, Seth Golden. Ding, 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 ding. Love that ding. Hey, we can do this for a living. <laughs> so let me set the scene here. I've got two beautiful pieces of lemon cake in front of me from By the Way Bakery. We got mint tea coming. You didn't get your tea? I'm drinking your tea. That's okay. 
I you enjoyed the tea. tea. You enjoyed you the have, tea. I'm fine. I'm so out in the habit of drinking the tea. I apologize. I'm fine. And I am here with a story to tell. Bear with it for a minute or two, and then you will see the point of vindication and understand why I'm here. So let me take you back. 2003, I'm doing an interview with Jack Welch. This is just after he left GE as CEO. We sit down, we're talking, having a good time. Interview's supposed to be about an hour and a half, but we're having such a good time that after an hour and a half, he's telling his stories. I started telling them my stories about boxing with Julio Cesar Chavez, swimming with 18-foot tiger sharks, He's having a ball. He says, you know, Cal, why don't we go get some lunch? I said, great, Jack. We're walking out of the house. I will never forget this moment. You're the only man that I can tell this story to. As we're about to leave, he turns to me and he says, you know, Cal, if I was still at GE, you n- never would have gotten out of this room without joining my marketing team. I was stunned because I kind of saw myself as a guy who was traveling around the world and writing across between Marco Polo and Ernest Hemingway. (laughs) And here Jack Welch has just called me a, a marketer, a marketer. And I look at him like, Robert De Niro and Taxi Driver. Like, you're talking to me, Jack? You're talking to me? A marketer? And he can see he's hurt my feelings. <laughs> and he says to me, Cal, I've been doing this a long time. Sometimes I'm wrong, but most of the time I'm right. We go off, we have lunch, it's a great time. And this story sticks in my head for years. More than a decade later, I get up to give my first speech. I don't even know what I'm doing. It was all on a lark. When I'm done, I get a standing ovation. And a guy who runs one of the biggest conventions for marketers, Patel, comes up. And afterward, he asked me to be a keynote at this event, and now I'm speaking in front of marketers. And I start to realize I may be one of them. (laughs) The only problem, and one of the great things about being here, I don't know how to market. And so I'm hoping that you'll give me a clue. So my first question is, are marketers born or are they made? Well, that's easy because almost everything is made. There are very few uh, skills, professions, talents, attitudes that are born. Because when you're born, you can't talk, you're pooping in your diaper. It's not really something that you know how to do. But I think it's important to understand there's a difference between accounting, where everyone knows what accounting is, and either you're an accountant or you're not accountant, and marketing. Because people argue about what marketing is, And some people say, I'm not a marketer, and some people say, I am. My theory is this. Everything is marketing. The product we make, the way we talk about it, 
the side effects, the way we treat our employees, the price, the location. It's all marketing. If you're making a decision about how to tell a story to the world, about how to change anything, you are doing marketing. You might be doing it really poorly, but that's what you're doing. Because marketing is the art of telling a story that's true to other people to cause them to change their behavior. And that's what we all do all day long. And in order to get good at it, it helps to have intention, to do it on purpose, to gain enrollment, to work with people who want to be marketed to. All of those things make you a better marketer. But it makes no sense to say, I hate marketing, when what you really mean to say is, I hate lying, scamming, hyping, and being selfish. Because, yeah, I'm glad you hate those things, but that's not marketing. That's just a bad version of marketing. Okay, but I'm talking about the best version of marketing. For example... We're over in the kitchen of your office, and I and you ask me, what kind of tea would you like? I say, mint tea. And you bring over a, a large container of tea leaves, but it's got dollar bills coming off a of mint. And so there's a way that you see the world that I might not necessarily see it, see it that way. Or can I learn to see it your way? Well, I think the point is that if you practice telling stories, you're a better public speaker than you were that first time. You're a better interviewer than you were that first time. When we practice something, we get better at it. So semiotics is the science of signals. Why does a stop sign work? Right? Stop signs work for a whole bunch of reasons, but the biggest one is we've been taught that a stop sign anywhere in the world means one thing. So the semiotics of the eight-sided red thing means stop. So we get choices to make when we put in a doorknob, right? If the door is a push door, it shouldn't have a pull handle on it because the semiotics of a pull handle are pull this. Good architects understand this. There's even a name for it, a Norman door. A Norman door is a door that communicates to you before you get to it. Is it a push or a pull? That's what a good architect is doing by marketing the door in a way that we understand what the door is for. So what I do for a living is tell stories to change people. And sometimes I can do that with an hour-long podcast where I can take my time and lay things out. And sometimes all I get is a little symbol. All I get is one little moment to make people think. And so if I'm giving a presentation, my presentation is different than yours. When I'm on stage, I use 180 slides in 40 minutes, and none of them have words on them. So there'll be a picture on the screen, and you'll look at the picture of a Frank Lloyd Wright house, and I'll tell a story about it. Now, that picture is a symbol, falling water. Everyone's seen it. My story tells you something about that house that you didn't know before, and the combination of my story and the picture is marketing. I change the way you think. Now, some people who haven't practiced as much as I do just put six bullet points on <laughs> I get it. But it's about discovering what doesn't work, and doing something else. Now I understand what Jack Welch is talking about. Because when you describe it to me that way, that's exactly what I'm hoping to do when I go to interview somebody, especially somebody who's famous. If I'm going to see Al Pacino or Robert De Niro or Richard Branson, I want to show them in that interview in a way where people who think they know him or know something about him will say, oh, that's why he's that way. Right. 
it's really the, the same thing. So I get it. I'm doing it in a different landscape. You're doing it intuitively. Yes. Right. Was there a time when you were, say, six years old that you knew you could do this? I did it really badly for a long time. I knew I, I always knew I wanted to do it. It felt to me like a combination of something I was capable of and something that was satisfying. So part of me wanted to be a computer programmer. I had the original Apple II. I, w- I had an email address in 1976 before anybody else. And, but what I discovered is that the lonely conceptual work of computer programming took more discipline than I was prepared to, to invest in it. But I also discovered that I got a thrill if I could tell a story that made things better, and it worked. But I was bad at it. I didn't present myself well, from my four-inch afro to the way I interacted with teachers. It was just I didn't market intuitively to the world and have them respond. But when you were in, say, third grade, were you in a play? or How did you try to express this talent that was in you? So in third grade, my teacher, Mr. Guillaume, was uh, absolutely fabulous. And he did a lot of group work, a lot of things that school ought to be doing. And one of them was building the city of the future out of leftover uh, coffee cups and things. We would spray paint things and build them up to build this future city. And I wanted not only to help lead part of that project, but to be recognized for my leadership of that project. You want to be the mayor. I want to be the mayor of the future of the city, <laughs> right? The city of the future. And um, Larry Uhas was also in the class. And he was much better at engaging with other human beings, particularly adults, to lead them. Not me. I just wanted the right answer. And he was really good at seeing that the right answer was secondary to, is there a human connection that's possible? And I saw that and I learned from that. And ironically, I went to another school a couple years later, and Larry showed up at my school a few years after that. Senior year of high school, he ran against me for student council president. Trounced me. <laughs> Trounced me, two to one. And I had the home field advantage. Did you know what was coming when he came into the school? Oh, I mean, it was like nine years later. Like, here's Larry. Let's, here you go. Oh, and he was a great guy. But the point is that you can, you can say charisma makes you a leader. But I believe leading gives you charisma. And that changes everything. That you gain charisma through your generous acts of leadership. You don't need authority. You don't need to win an election. What you need to do is act as if to be this generous leader. And then over time, people ascribe charisma to you, and then you get picked. If I was looking at you when you were in high school, or maybe before, what was your family dinner like? So I won the parent lottery without question. Um, Both my parents had passed away, but uh, my dad was the volunteer head of the United Way. My mom was the first woman on the board of the Art Museum. And this is in Buffalo, a great town to grow up in. And there were always strangers in our house. There were sales reps who were calling on the museum for the museum store. There were... uh, Russian immigrants who were newly arrived in the U.S. working for my dad. There were friends and neighbors, and it was this, I grew up believing that that was normal, that what you did was you had an open door to the community, and they were part of what was going on. And 
My parents went out a lot at night, but there was always this sense for my two sisters and I that this home was a home and that the, sitting around that table, everybody had a voice, everybody was part of the conversation. It is true that I was not allowed to sit anywhere except at the foot of the table because the other seats, you could see the reflection in the sliding door and I would spend the whole meal looking at myself in the mirror making faces. So I had to sit with my back to the mirror. But other than that, it was a, an entertaining and sometimes raucous place to grow. What does that do for your sense of connection, having all these different people coming into your home? Because for me, I had that experience when I went out into the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm traveling around the world for years without a home. And I'm coming into homes. Right. But I didn't have it the other way. Yeah. I hated it. You did? I hated it. That's why you were making faces. and strangers. <laughs> Not when it was just the five of us, it was just what I wanted. But when strangers came in, I didn't knew, know where I stood. And again, it was back to that charisma, personal interaction thing. And so I would feel displaced by that and would act out in the face of it. And I regret that because my parents were being generous to people and having them show up. But I didn't have enough confidence in myself. I wasn't secure enough in my standing to be the generous host that my parents were being. I felt like someone's in my seat. Now, when you picked me up at the train station, you seemed like the ultimate host. Is this like what you learned yeah. from, your, from your childhood? Yeah. Yeah, this is channeling. What would my mom do? I ask that question all the time. What was it that made her extraordinary? Um, you know, when she died, Buffalo's not that big a town. Uh, they had to close the street. 300 people came to her funeral. And um, she made everybody feel like they were the only person. That was her skill. And she wasn't faking it. In that moment, if she was with you, you were the person she wanted to be with. And doing that without faking it is really an extraordinary commitment. Because what it means is you're not saying, how do I manipulate this moment? You've made almost a mindful decision about being present and choosing. And in the world of the smartphone, it's harder than ever because we'd rather check our email than be with whoever we are with. But she would put whatever else was going on to the side. And she was the person who was the host. She was the person who was making the connections, connecting this person to that person. I mean, it's been 15 years and I still get emails from sales reps who used to call on her about the relationship they had with my mom. Wow. What about your dad? And so my dad, my dad made a deal with my sisters and I uh, that he would pay for college. We had to pay for room and board, but he would pay for college if we studied engineering. Because what kind of deal is that? It's a great deal. Because, Wait, hold on here. Because he said, look, you should, it's great to learn all the other stuff. You should learn all the other stuff. But you should leave college knowing how to make something. Knowing that you have a hard skill that is truly valuable. That he thought, yeah, know about the French Revolution and things like that, but be an engineer. And so all three of us became engineers. My dad was trained as an engineer, but ended up running a business, a hospital crib company in Buffalo. They make most of the hospital cribs in the world. The bad news is hospital cribs never break. So there's not a lot of replacement (laughs) business for hospital cribs. Um, But being an engineer meant 
that he saw problems and knew how to fix them or knew how to bring people to the table who would fix them. And that is something that I've carried with me ever since, is that you look for the change agent, the thing that caused this situation to occur, that means that there's a problem. Okay, then you say, this problem, who's got the problem? What change am I trying to make? What resources do I need to bring to the table to address this problem? And by cycling this over and over again, he was able, he applied it to many things in his life. And growing up, knowing that it wasn't magic, that there was a solution available, that has informed so much of my work. Is, is that what enables you to look like six levels beyond? And because like when I'm seeing the world, I'm looking at you and it's like you're the, it's like what you're describing your mom. You're the only thing that exists in front of me right now. But it sounds like an engineer is thinking behind you one step, two steps, three steps. Yeah. We call this design thinking. We teach it in the Alt-MBA. And design thinking, who's it for, what's it for? Because it can't be for everyone. And it can't do everything. But if you're not willing to say who's it for and what's it for, you can't do important work because you're just a wandering generality. You're not being a meaningful specific. And so engineers, designers, have to do it on purpose. They don't accidentally invent a better doorknob. They don't accidentally invent a piece of software that makes people's lives better. They're doing it with intention. And that's scary because if you announce your intention and then you fail, it's really clear you couldn't achieve what you set out to do. So I'm at the Super Bowl last week and I was invited there by a company and I meet a marketer. And this is why I'm all very right. curious about all this. Yeah. And we start to talk. And when I meet somebody, I am like looking into them to, just to discover what I can. I noticed that she was doing exactly what an engineer was doing. She was looking like three layers behind me, already thinking, all right, he was invited to this place, I wonder why. What did the people who invited him want in order to, to in, invite him? She, she was already like three layers beyond me in ways that I wasn't even thinking. Well, but here's the key question. Was she doing that to serve you or was she doing that to serve her? Because if she's doing it to serve you, then she's acting in the best spirit of design, engineering, and marketing. If she's doing it to serve herself, she's manipulating. She's saying, how do I get something out of this? And if I've contributed something to marketing in the last 20 years, it's that distinction. So you want to push the manipulation out of marketing. It doesn't work. It doesn't scale. It doesn't last. And it's not human. So permission marketing, which was my first uh, big contribution was this idea that anticipated personal and relevant messages always do better than spam and stuff you don't want to hear about. And I got kicked out of the Direct Marketing Association for writing that book because the Direct Marketing Association said, but we stand for annoying people. <laughs> they wouldn't let me speak at events and things like that, right? 
But over the years, they realized that once you can contact people for free, which is what the internet is, the other method can't possibly work because it's just noise. And so the shift people have come back around to of, would I be missed if I were gone? That that's the selfish question that everyone needs to ask. This thing I do, if I stop doing it tomorrow, those emails I send, that ditch I dig, that restaurant I run, if I stopped, how many people would miss it? I know one, a guy who sent you an email, we'll get to a little later on, but to this one guy, you are one of the most important people in the world, as you'll come to see. That's so nice. So what I'm, what I'm wondering is how, how do I bring this to my own life? I know I can tell stories, and here's the best example I can give you. I just started to speak, so I didn't have a website. Now I need a website. Mm -hmm. So we put up a website, and I started a podcast. One of my sponsors makes websites, Squarespace. So now i got to change the website. But I realize I don't know anything about websites. I'm pointing out, pointed out to your website, and I become fascinated with your website. Completely fascinated. Number one, the look on your face. Two reasons. One, your eyes are off to the left, uh, as if you're seeing something that nobody else is seeing. And then two, and when I say off to the left, I mean they're in the corners of your eyes. And two, your frames are honey lemon. And I've never seen honey lemon glasses before. So we got somebody who's seen in a completely different way through a different frame. Now, is that what you wanted me to get out of it? Or were you just being authentic? Okay, so I got to talk about authentic for one second, and then we'll get back to your question. There's no such thing as authenticity. That if you wake up in the morning, you don't go to work naked, even if you feel like it. You don't call somebody up who is supposed to be your friend and ream them out. You act in ways that work for you. We haven't been authentic since we were 90 days old, lying in a a diaper with poop in it. Ever since then, we make choices. And so what authenticity really means is, are you consistent? Are you like this whether or not people are watching? Are you like this whether or not... You have something you want. Oh, are you doing this for yourself or? Right. Okay. So the authentic version of me is extremely close to the public version of me in the sense that I don't have to wonder how am I supposed to act today? It's consistent. The authentic version of me is a lot more shy and will stand in the corner at a cocktail party because I don't want in that moment to exert the energy to connect to yet another stranger. But- When I'm at work, my job is to connect with people in a way (laughs) that helps me see them and help solve their problem. So now back to your question. Designing The website you're talking about was built more than five or so years ago and cost me less than $800. It's not expensive to build a website that works for most companies, most individuals. The questions are, who's coming here? Because not everyone is. The people who are coming, why did they come? 
What do they believe before they even get here? So Cal Fussman is not a site that people get to accidentally. You got to type in a lot of letters to get to calfussman.com. So the people who are coming are already believing something about you, already know something about you, already want something. So that's the who's it for. A tiny group of people. If you just could, could persuade 100 people a day to change their mind about you and hire you to give a speech or be on your podcast or whatever, it would change your life, 100 people a day. That's all you need. So if that tiny group, what do they need to know or understand about you that makes them want to engage, right? So I had never heard of you until recently. My fault. I'm not an Esquire reader. No, I was always under the radar. Right? But now, I mean, I read the, the award-winning article about Windows on the World. It made me cry a little bit. I saw this and I saw that and I listened to this. I'm like, wow, this guy's the real deal. You didn't do that by bragging. You did this by telling me what I needed to know about where you fit in the pantheon, in the constellations of who's who, right? And so now you remind me of something. You are affiliated with something in my brain. So the things that were already in my brain, Jack Welch is over here, Muhammad Ali is over here, they're in my brain already. You are nestled up there. So now you stand for something because you've earned it, because it's true, because it's, in your words, authentic. So now the challenge of the website, which shouldn't be more than a couple pages long, are the semiotics, the symbolism. What does it look like? The typeface. What does the typeface remind me of? Does this look like an all-night you know, Ron Popeil infomercial, or does it look like <laughs> Apple? Because each one could stand for something different symbolically, right? And then the last step is, now what do I want them to do? And for someone in your shoes, what you want them to do is send, them a, send you an email or subscribe to your podcast. Those are the only two outcomes. Right? You're not trying to get them to go subscribe to Esquire magazine. You're not trying to get them Correct. to join some community and start chatting with other people. So there's all these tools the web lets us have, but we don't need them. What we need is connection. What we need is people who want to hear from us to hear from us and people we want to hear from to reach us. That's all it is. So if you could build a page that converts those people into people who are eager to go to the next step with you, the page will be successful. And Squarespace, like many sites, makes it easy to do that. It's not a big project. So to go back to my website, yes, I chose, you know, Damon does really good work on Shark Tank. They asked me to audition for it years ago. And I'm like, no, I don't want to be the bad guy like that other guy on Shark Tank. Oh, Mr. Wonderful. And I don't want to be famous. I just want to do my work. And so when you come to my website, what you're seeing is not someone saying, please, please, please buy everything. You're not looking at someone to say, of course you know who I am. You're just looking at someone who says, maybe I'm seeing things a little differently than you, and I'm happy to share it with you. Click on my head, and I'll tell you what I'm thinking today. Well, that was the other thing. That was genius. genius. Click on my head. It's like saying, click on my head, and you will tap into my brain. That, yeah, I mean, I've written a blog every day for many, many, many years. And it's a privilege, and I would write it even if no one read it. How long... Have you been writing? Were you doing, keeping a diary when you were very young? Or did you go from engineer to writer? What, what so, was the road? So in high school, as I told you, I was a little provocative. And I... All I heard about was the Afro. I didn't like, I didn't <laughs> like any of the offerings in the English department. So I petitioned to teach an English course on science fiction. And they let me do it. 
because I'd read every science fiction book in the Clearfield Public <laughs> Library from Asimov to Zelazny. And so I taught this course. How many, how many students were there in their class? There were 20 people. It was a good class. I, I, I found some good threads in there. <laughs> but in my high school yearbook, my English teacher wrote, you are the bane of my existence and you will never amount to anything. No. It's true. So I went to college. <laughs> and in college, I only took one English course in all four years. And I didn't really like it very much because intro literature in college is designed to weed out people that the English department doesn't want to hang out with. So I was done with that. Then I got a job. After business school, I got a job at a software company where I was a marketer. And it was the perfect job for me because I was managing engineers. I was working with science fiction authors. I worked with Ray Bradbury. I worked with Michael Crichton. It was thrilling. 23 years old, I was doing this. Wow. But what happened was... If I couldn't make things go faster, they were going to cancel my brand because we were behind. So someone had to write all the packaging copy. Someone had to write all the instruction manuals. Someone had to write all the ad copy. It was me. And I stayed up all night and I wrote it. And I thought, whoa, this isn't like writing about Shakespeare. This is adopting a voice and delivering it. And I was pretty good at it. And the series that we did was based on science fiction novels. But one game came in, computer game, that didn't have a novel associated with it. So wanting symmetry, I said, we need a novel. So I hired Alan Dean Foster, who wrote the uh, Alien book. And I called up Warner Books. And they said, well, if you've got Alan Dean Foster, we'll publish it. So I made the book to match the game, which was the first time anyone had ever novelized a computer game. And I, whoa, they're paying Alan Dean Foster $10,000 to write a book. I could do that. So when I left the software company, I became a book packager and did 120 books on gardening, on test prep, on this and this. And sometimes when I couldn't find a writer, I would write it myself. And I discovered that if I could write like I talked, I didn't have a talking problem, so I wouldn't have a writing problem, and I could do it. That's when I became a writer. I remember the singer Neil Young telling me that he would just pick a time in a day. It was a time to write. Going to write a song here. Yeah. Sit down. And an hour later, it was done. That's right. And plumbers don't get plumber's block, and writers shouldn't get writer's block. It's invented. It's all make-believe. Uh, but it, it's, it almost sounds like having that background where this has to be done by tomorrow morning. Yeah. And it doesn't have to, it's, doesn't have to rhyme. You just, it's a manual. You, right. You got to get the information down, and that just teaches you. Right, exactly. Start, get done. It's work. And the whole, it turns out that, Percy Shelley, Mary Shelley's husband, invented writer's block. There wasn't writer's block until he wrote an essay about it, a poem that said, basically, if the muse doesn't come to you, you're dry, don't even try. And it got adopted by poets, and then it got adopted by novelists. And this was right when Hemingway was becoming the great American novelist that it became a big deal to be a writer. Before that, writing was like plumbing. You just wrote. And so I don't buy the whole writer's block thing because... And I was friends with Isaac Asimov before he died. Isaac wrote 400 books, published them. Isaac, how did you do that? He said, it's pretty simple. I get up at 6.30 in the morning. I sit at my manual typewriter overlooking Lincoln Center, and I type. And I type until noon. And it doesn't matter if it's good typing or bad typing, but I got to type. Because if you just keep typing, sooner or later, your brain's going to say, ah, stop with the bad stuff. I'll give you some good stuff. Because it's not going to talk you out of not typing. And that's the idea, right? Is because I have a blog every day, I have a blog every day. 
I don't blog because I have something to say. I have something to say because I blog. And that changes everything. Well, again, it's you seeing the world in a, in a different way. Practice, yeah. But, but very simple. Where did you understand the manipulation in marketing and understand, I, I got to get this out of here? So my first marketing gig, I spent millions of dollars of other people's money. I wasn't the president. I was just brand manager. People Magazine, U.S. Open, commercials, the whole thing. And then I met this guy, um, Jay Levinson, and we wrote four books together. He pioneered guerrilla marketing. So I wrote the guerrilla marketing books for a while. And it doesn't take very long to meet marketers who want to manipulate people, who want to scam people, because they're looking for a shortcut. And it's, they have a problem. They're drowning. This is a life raft. Just get me out of here. And that hucksterism was interesting and sort of carnivalistic in the 80s because most marketers were Heinz and Crest and people who had standards. But when the internet started compressing it all into one big thing, the, the place where Heinz and Crest buy ads now is exactly the same where the payday loan guy's buying ads, which is exactly the same place where the huckster's buying ads. So there's no longer a way to tell from the spot if this is a good person or a bad person. And so now there's a race to the bottom. And the race to the bottom is you say, well, my competitors are cheating and lying and hyping and scamming, so I better do it too. And the real place where I noticed it was with email because at the beginning spam didn't have there wasn't a world wide web then it was just use groups places where people would have discussions a little like Craigslist and two lawyers decided that they would spam the world with an ad for immigrants to get a green card that if you answered this email and sent them $700 or whatever it was they would get you a green card well, number one, they wouldn't get you a green card. And number two, they were sending the email to every human who was on the internet because it was free. And the combination of those two things, that you can take my attention anytime you want, and that you're ostensibly a lawyer past the bar, but you're ripping off immigrants who don't have two pennies to rub together, that is what pushed me over the edge. I was like, this is what it's all going to become. And I've got to figure out how to shine a light on a different way to do it. And that led to permission marketing. It led to the purple cow. It led to tribes. All of those ideas were built in response to the race to the bottom. And as you start writing these books, is, is it easy because one idea is coming on the next? You're writing every day. You're going through this Isaac Asimov process where you just start spewing and then you're grabbing little nuggets in there. Oh, that's a tribe's. <laughs> You know, yep. it was easy to write pretty good stuff. And there was a lot of pressure to write sequels. So once permission marketing takes off, they say, please write the permission marketing handbook, the permission marketing workbook, permission marketing updated, and you can be the permission marketing guy. <laughs> yeah. And you, didn't, you don't want to do I that. I wasn't a writer for a living because I had already built an internet company and I was lucky enough to be able to write because I wanted to. But also it seems like you're always seeing something new and different. That's what, not, yeah. not, That's what makes it interesting to right. me, right? And so I said, I'm not doing that. Let anyone else run with that. I'm going to do another thing. And so the hard part was a year before you're done, you have to announce to yourself and your publisher, this is a worthy of a year of my life. And... So I wrote a book 
called um, Survival is Not Enough. Charles Darwin wrote the foreword, and it's about evolutionary thinking applied to business. And it was way ahead of its time. And it took eight hours a day for a year to write. I deleted 200 pages of good stuff because it was so long. I had pages and pages of footnotes. And the book was a total failure. Why? Because Darwin freaks people out and because it came out three weeks after 9-11, which was not a good time to talk to people about how change and fear are good things, right? And um, But what I learned from it was it's easy to get in my own head to be more clever than I was last time and that the real win is for me to find a simple idea that many people will say is obvious, but to describe it with enough depth that even after they say it's obvious, they learn a lot and then they can build things on it going forward. So that has been the method that I've used. And I haven't published a book traditionally in a lot of years because it's a whole other story. Um, But books work best, not when they're fresh, but if a year or five years or 10 years later, someone says, what do you mean you haven't read that? And now they can catch up. That's why a book is a great format. I I remember Sam and Rushdie uh, talking about um, knowing that Midnight's Children will be around in 100 years. And that was his symbol of satisfaction. Yeah. It's scary when it happens. It's happened to me a couple of times. It's really cool. Which are the books that you feel that way about? Well, it's not that I feel that way. It's that other people feel that way. Because if I felt that way, I would say all of my books are like that. <laughs> really? Do you, do you feel that they're all like that? Or do some stand out to you more than others? Well, so, you know, when you've got more than one kid, you can't pick a family. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And when I meet somebody who's having a all marketers are liars problem or a free price inside problem or a we are all weird problem, I can say, here, in 45 minutes, you'll be caught up. I believe it's not out of date. It, the concept still holds. But what the world has told me is that The Dip, which is a book about quitting, the first book of its kind, has shifted them. They tell me that tribes enabled them to build what they built, that Purple Cow is something they thought was always in the world, and I just happened to name it. I mean, there are a couple of these books along the way. And then Lynchpin, I, w- I went out to dinner two nights ago, and the waiter came up with a copy of Lynchpin. He said, I carry this with me everywhere I go. And I wrote that book seven years ago, right? And it's like, thank you. That means the world. I'm glad it's helping you get to where you want to go. I've never heard a story about a waiter carrying around a book wherever he must have been an actor. I don't know what he did for his day, his evening job, but it was it was well dog-eared. Whoa, 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 we gotta pause now. Cause Kevin the manager tells me it's time to talk about the people who make all this possible. Our sponsors. Look, we all know Squarespace enables you to create the most beautiful website imaginable. Common knowledge. So this time, I thought I'd speak about Squarespace a little differently. Because not long ago, I decided to compete in Spartan obstacle races. And I quickly realized I needed someone to help me train. That's when I met 
Lil Misty. Very special woman, Lil Misty. When she steps on a scale, doesn't hit 80 pounds. When we stand next to each other, she's basically a little taller than my stomach, and I'm only about 5'5". Five five. That's because Lil Misty has spina bifida, a disease that's caused when the spine and the spinal cord don't form properly. After 28 surgeries, she took up racing. And now she's going all over the world, climbing eight-foot walls, chucking spears, pulling sleds, climbing ropes, doing all the other obstacles. She's also a motivational speaker. And when I asked her how she represented herself in a website, you know what she said? Two words. Squarespace. Okay, it's time for somebody else to tell you about ZipRecruiter 2. This week, you're going to hear from a guy named Jeff Ford in Indiana. This is a little phone conversation we had. We'll pick it up from here. Oh, man, I, I went for like four years unemployed. I had terrible health problems, and I tried a lot of other uh, recruiting-type agencies. And I had very little success until I came along ZipRecruiter. It was ZipRecruiter that just kind of dialed in on what was uh, special about me. I listed my resume with them and almost immediately started getting great hits. It led to a job with uh, Pelador and Window Company. I'm now an installation manager for them. It pays great money, great benefits. And I've never been happier, and it's all due to ZipRecruiter. Need to hire? Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N. Get a free trial and find the right people for your business. And we're back. Can you explain to me, because it seems like you have a really great grasp on the history of what has happened in the media in our time. Yeah. And I've discussed this with Damon John, but it's something that just keeps coming out of me. Because when I was in journalism school back in the 70s, I would, the one thing that I was taught was there is a wall and you are a writer Mm -hmm. and you're on one side of this wall and you have your integrity and you're going to be paid to do what you love. Just do not step on the other side of the wall. Right. Now, that has always been in my head and I never went anywhere near where the money was. Yeah. Because... Always somebody figured out a way to let me do what I wanted to do. And then I met a young guy who had dropped out of school to write a book about success. He actually sent you an email. I'll I'll refresh your memory. Yes. And he 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 had the mentality of a marketer. I could tell that. But he he was writing this book and he needed to be a writer. And I said to him, Well, look, you gotta understand, there's a wall. And if you're going to be a writer, you got to stay on this side of the wall. And he looked at me, this is only a few years ago. His name's Alex. And he said, what wall? Yeah. There's no wall. Yeah. And I said, what do you mean there's no <laughs> wall? 
So there's no wall anymore. Yeah. And what I want to know is, are things really the same except that somebody told me a story about this wall that I believed? No, things are different. Things are really different. I'll try to give you the short version. I had dinner last night with two people in their mid-20s. They didn't know what a 300-baud modem was. They didn't understand. I mean, it's really important to understand how we got here because it's still affecting us. Here's the analogy. When music was on vinyl, the vinyl and the music were connected. You couldn't have one without the other. As soon as we took the music off the vinyl and could spread it and duplicate it, the entire business model, not just of for the executives, but for the musicians, changes forever. Because things that were scarce aren't scarce anymore. Right? Does that make sense when we think about music? Yeah. Okay. So when we think about journalism, the equivalent of the vinyl was a piece of paper. So if the New York Times is on a piece of paper, Esquire is on a piece of paper, every issue costs money. That creates a scarce number of issues, a scarce number of competitors. If you're an advertiser and you want to reach a certain group of people, there's only a scarce number of places to run the ad. You run at one of those places and pay a fortune. That fortune leaves a little bit of money left over to pay cow, right? And what these each of these entities discovered is the more honest they keep their journalists, the more subscribers they have, the more subscribers they have, the more they can charge. So everything was in a virtuous cycle. This was true for 500 years. 500 years? Yeah, since Gutenberg. That's been the model, right? And the shift is we got rid of paper. And once you get rid of paper... You're getting rid of the vinyl. Right. Anyone can have a magazine. Anyone can have a TV station. Anyone can have a newspaper. Well, if anyone can have one, the number of places you can run an ad goes through the roof. And if the number of places you can run an ad goes through the roof, the amount you're going to pay per ad goes way down. And if the amount of ad your revenue is coming in goes down, there's less money to pay Cal. So the game changes. And the game changes to they're not making any more attention. Attention is still scarce. How am I going to get the eyeballs of the person who used to wait a month for Esquire to show up in their mailbox? Because that person isn't waiting a month anymore. They've got six hours a day, four hours a day, eight hours a day, eyeball time to look at media. And so the Kardashians show up. And so the infomercial people show up and the YouTube people show up. And there's just this race for eyeballs. And the eyeballs aren't asking hard questions like, what's your ulterior motive? The eyeballs are just saying, is there a cute cat? Is there a naked person in it? I'll watch. (laughs) And so at some level, podcasts represent this shift where someone who's willing to spend hours of their life to make a podcast is building something that's scarce again. Because you can't make an hour-long podcast in six minutes of effort, right? You've got to put days of effort into making an hour-long podcast, sometimes weeks. So that's scarce. So advertisers are paying extra for it. But here's what's going to happen. It's already happening. Because it's almost a business to have a podcast, not a good one, but almost, Lots of people are going to start them. And if lots of people are going to start them, there's lots to listen to. And if there's lots to listen to, no podcast will get enough listeners, which means that no advertiser will pay enough to support any good podcast anymore, back to the race to the bottom. And so this cycle is corrupting our culture. It's corrupting the time and effort of professional journalists 
because they can't make a craft at it anymore because they're not getting a CPM of 80, which is what Esquire used to charge. They're getting a CPM of eight cents. And they're in a crowded marketplace. And it's really hard to be a publisher and a journalist at the same time and to figure out how to always be in hustle mode. And that's a problem. So we're in this amateur moment. It may not stay that way, but right now, most of the people who make most of the content are amateurs, not professionals. And they have other goals different than what a professional used to have. So what happens going forward? Well, that's always a good question. So let's think about poetry. The number of professional poets is really low. Can't make a living as a poet the way you used to 100 years ago. Because anyone can write poetry, but there's no place to put it. So it's similar to this situation. Except Bob Dylan's a poet, and he's worth $150 million. Because he's not just a poet, he's a famous poet with songs. So we see the constant morphing of what it even means to be a storyteller, what it even means to be a journalist. Maybe what it means to be a journalist is no longer you wait for your editor to give you an assignment and then you write this. Maybe what it means to be a journalist is 20 times a year you're on stage telling your stories for a lot of money and the rest of the time you're doing the work that enables you to tell those stories. That explains it. Here's the other thing. As you were talking, I was thinking... I have a buddy, his name is Inkyu. He's a spoken word poet. Mm-hmm. And he sold out the Ace Theater in downtown Los Angeles. There were people lined up around yeah. the block to hear him speak his poetry. Yeah. Uh, he does politically active poetry uh, that, like, against uh, guns and, or for gun control, and it circulates around the web. Sure. So he's got a particular following, but he's able to do that. Right. To, to get on stage and have a following. Right. So I guess what, what I'm wondering, where, where my head got to get screwed on, is, all right, there's no more wall there. Do I step to the other side and meet these advertisers and brands and companies that have these products and form partnerships with them. Well, maybe you need a partner, right? That there are people who aren't good at all at what you do, but there are also people who are great at business development, at being a publisher. What is a publisher? A publisher is someone who takes a financial risk to bring an idea to an audience that doesn't know that idea exists and gets them to pay for it. So your partner can be the person who figures out how to make a podcast that makes a profit and then hires you as the half owner or the three-quarters owner of the business to make a podcast worth listening to. Now you're back to being a journalist again. That what's the challenge is we went into amateur hours, everyone's a publisher and an author. Uh, at the same time. I see, but here's the thing. When you started to package books, you were on both sides. Both. You were on both exactly. sides. That so permitted the, me to do it. And yes. this is what I'm wondering. Is, is it okay? Oh, it's totally okay. You have it, my blessing. <laughs> I put holy water on you. Are you sure you don't need tea? Because I don't does, want you to get... Does it sound like sound it? Great, I, I, but okay. I feel so badly drinking my no, tea. No, no, that, that's okay. good. I'm glad yeah. you got the tea. Okay. okay. So one of the things on your website, huge word, go. Yeah. 
And you, you, like I've heard interviews where you talk about power and you have more power than you think. Right. It seems like it's one of your missions to let people exactly. know that. All right. So I have this question. I'm watching the politics like everybody else. And I don't understand what quite happened. Because I look at this country and I see 80% of the people really at the bottom of it, at the essence, are in the middle. And there's 10% on the far right, 10% on the far left, but there's no candidate in the middle to get the 80% and activate them. And then page 17 of page tribes. Page 17, okay, Page ready. 17, here we go. The uh, partisans want something to happen and something else not to happen. And partisans want to make a difference. If you're a middle of the rotor, you don't bother joining a tribe. And so we got all these people in the middle that can't join a tribe in the middle that would actually help save us as we move forward. Okay. You want me to opine? Opine. Well, if, if I, if, if I was more powerful than I thought. Yep. And I said, and not only that, but if Jack Welch was right and I, do have a little marketer in me. Yep. And I said, I want to spread a story, a story about how 80% of this company, this country, right, is truly connected. Yeah. And we have to look around and realize it. And we have to take back the middle. Right. How how could I do that if in fact people in the middle don't want us tribe? Okay. So Lots to decode here. Let me begin with this. Uh, The largest slum in Kenya is called Kabira. More than a million people live there. Extraordinary people. People who are hardworking, but it's a slum. And it's easy to imagine that if you live in a slum with no toilet, no running water, no electricity, that's made from bits of uh, aluminum and fiberglass slapped together, that you could be powerless. However, there's a woman in Kabira who started a medical clinic. She's just a nurse. And as a result, there are thousands of people who are healthy and alive today because this one woman said, I'm going to do this. She had the power to do it. And so did a million other people in Kabira, or maybe only the 10,000 nurses, right? But one person did it. So my argument is it's easy to hide by telling ourselves we have less power. But all of us are connected to 2 billion other people online, if we're listening to this. All of us have the ability to write articles, to make videos, to organize meetups, to put people together, to start petitions, to run for office, to do things large and small. We all have that power, but we'd rather not admit we do. Because if we have the power, we're also responsible. And if you know you can save that kid in the pond who's drowning and you don't, you kill them. And when there's a kid drowning in a pond, we rescue them because we realize it's an emergency and we have to go do it. But multiplied at scale, we could do it more. We could speak up. So that's my short power riff. But the political riff works like this. There are fundamental flaws in 
traditional voting systems in open democracy. And they come down to what you just highlighted on page 17, and which is all in my book, We Are All Weird, which says that the people on the edges care way more than the people in the middle on every topic. Shoes, spicy food, (laughs) politics. You'll find people on the edges, right? Like, I hate cilantro. I will go out of my way to not eat cilantro. What what do you got against cilantro? soap. It gives me a headache. It's a conspiracy. (laughs) The point is, if I'm with other people who are sort of meh about cilantro, they'll do whatever I want because they're indifferent, right? But the people who love it or the people who hate it in every topic. Now, America is in a particular situation. It's not 10% of the people are on the left and 10% are on the right. In fact, less than 1% of the people are really far on the left. Almost nobody wants to run a co- live in a communist, socialist, Marxist economy, right? On right. the other hand, the right is extraordinarily well organized with systems in place and direct marketing campaigns in place and talking points memos in place so that a small group of people are multiplied in volume because someone took the time to organize this particular point of view. And that is why, and the Olin Foundation and a few others started doing this 40 years ago, why the country shifted the way it did. Because a small group of well-organized people can shift an enormous culture. Because most people in the middle don't care that much. They're not paying attention. They're not choosing to be active. They don't vote. Almost, I mean, almost nobody is not the right number, but more than 50% of the people in most Communities don't right. vote, even in a close election, right. right? So if you organize people who care and ignore the middle, you will make way more change than if you try to organize the middle. And that's true for ketchup, and it's true for air travel, and it's true for politics. So it's the right idea, but the wrong group of people. Correct. And so where we're going to shift, because everything comes back, where we're going to shift is that people who aren't part of that well-organized uh, right group will find a commonality that they cannot stand. So growing up in Buffalo in the 1970s, Love Canal became an issue. First Superfund site, you know, babies born ill, toxic waste. What happened was a whole bunch of housewives, a whole bunch of dads, saw this was happening. These were not politically active people. They became politically active. Because suddenly they weren't in the middle of people uh, who don't care. I see. Okay. So there's going to be an issue. And when that issue happens, if we organize around it and are persistent and consistent and generous and connected, suddenly that becomes the issue. And it could become the issue for a generation or two. The fact that there's so much political dysfunction, is that an issue to you that's strong enough to mobilize people because it just seems like everything is gridlocked? Yeah, in, in, in history, that has not been what motivates people. It's the engineer in me uh, abhors the waste. And to imagine how much money and time is squandered while kids are going to bed hungry is offensive to me. But it's really hard for that to motivate millions of people because you can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't touch it, that there's other deeper things going on here. So one of the challenges going forward is this. Some people measure their life in terms of affiliation, 
Who likes me? Where am I doing something that's shameful? Where is my tribe? Other groups of people measure things in terms of dominion. Who dominates me? Who do I dominate? Who is winning? Who is losing? So if you're going to pay a football coach $4 million a year at a college, he's probably on the dominion side, right? He's not worrying who likes him. He's worried, who did I beat? Because if he beats everybody, everybody's going to like him. Yeah. Well, no, it's simple as I won, therefore I'm good. Okay. Right? You and I don't have that mindset. But the people who have that mindset, it goes all the way back to Genesis, right? Dominion over the earth, dominion over the animals, dominion over women, right? Dominion, dominance. Dominion has been mistranslated. It doesn't really mean dominance, but that's what it's come to mean. I may not have everything, but I'm better than you. That's a way of looking at the world. And so one of the things that's gone on in our culture in the last few years is that the affiliation people have lost a lot of their voice and the dominion domination people have gained a lot of their voice because status roles amplified by money, amplified by the media portraying money, show imply that someone with a private jet is better than someone who doesn't have a private jet. That somebody who has this ratings or whatever is better than someone who doesn't. And so if we get hung up on status, then it's inevitable that we're going to get the kind of uh, gridlock and dysfunction we have. Because if all you care about is winning, not affiliation, then it's really hard for democracy to work. Do you think that if this keeps up, like our system is in peril? Or do you think that there will be a swing in the pendulum in the other direction to balance. Yeah, I'm really hopeful that it's a swing of the pendulum. And here's the thing. Culture beats everything. Culture beats strategy. Culture beats uh, all sorts of intervention. The company culture, the community culture, the way, you know, cannibalism's gone forever because culturally it's unacceptable. There are lots of things that used to be okay, that aren't okay anymore because gradually the culture shifts and says we don't do, people like us don't do things like this. And so when somebody or some group tries to shift the culture, it takes way more than they thought it did because the culture wants to go back to the way it was. And it wants to go back to people like us, we do things like this, we don't do things like that. And that shift makes me optimistic because I think we live in one of the best cultures in history And I'm hoping that that culture doesn't turn into one of the worst cultures in history. And so far, if you look at how people act and talk, aside from the sideshow that the media wants to put on, we really are civilized people who want to connect with others, who want to look other people in the eye, who don't want to destroy our neighbor just to get in. And this is the 80% I'm talking about. Right. And so that's a ballast in a good way that keeps the thing from oscillating out of control. What will happen when all this artificial intelligence and and these robots that we keep hearing about, it it doesn't seem like it's going to be very much time Mm -hmm. before they'll be in front, it'll all be in front of us. In fact, I was told that in 29 states, the top employment job is driver. Yeah, there's so, more than 3 million people who for a full-time living drive. So if in five or six years... All gone. What stories need to be created to help those people 
move on to a better place or are they just in the dustbin of history? Okay, so there's a lot to be worried about here. I'm not sure that is the thing to be worried about. Um, It turns out that the jobs that we destroy and the jobs we create, this has been going on for a very long time, that punch card operators in the 70s when you first got your job was a big job. Now there are none of them, right? That the steam shovel put an enormous number of ditch diggers out of work enormous number that when they invented the automated tomato picker, if you were a tomato picker, you were in really big trouble. So there's a long history of that. The difference is that soon computers will teach each other to do things. And that means that a little progress ratchets into more progress, ratchets into more progress. And that the race to do a job a computer can't do is going to get ever more challenging. Because if you can write down what needs to be done, a computer is going to be able to do it. So let's talk about x-ray technician, radiology. Not the, the person who presses the button, but the woman who actually reads the x-ray. Years of study, full medical school plus years after that. Well, for most x-rays, a computer can do it better. Think about it. It's pattern recognition. Right. Computers are dumb and patient, and they can learn it. So if you're a radiologist, you do not have a bright future unless you can figure out how to do a branch of radiology where you can't write down how to tell the difference between a good x-ray and a bad x-ray. There's going to be a niche for that for years to come. So that race is going to be challenging because the number of jobs that actually create cash value that we can't write down what you do, it's hard to scale that very much. And that's what Lynchpin is about. Lynchpin is about do the job that's not in the manual because we need that. So there is Albert Wegner and others are arguing that we need to shift because as AI creates all this productivity, the money shouldn't go to the six people who own the software. We should figure out how to make it so that people have food and shelter because it doesn't make any sense for two-thirds of the population to die on the streets so that one-third of the population can do their fancy non-computer job. We already have this idea that the roads are free, that the drinking fountains are free, that the public bathrooms are free, that the library is free. Well, the next layer, as we get more productive... Your food is free? Your food is free and your house is free because we can afford it because a computer can build it, a robot can create it, that it's working because all this productivity is happening. Productivity is the measure of output per hour worked, right? Well, guess what? That software that reads x-rays is busy working all day long and no one's doing any work. So it has a productivity of infinity because no one put any extra effort into reading one more x-ray. So as we move forward, we have to ask a key question, which is, is the purpose of civilization to enable capitalism or is the purpose of capitalism to enable civilization? And I think it's the second one, that our job is not to suffer so capitalism can work. Our job is to use capitalism so that people don't suffer. And that we ought to be able to create a world where we can do journalism, where we can do innovation, not because the other half of us is figuring out how to get paid for it, but because it's joyful and important and makes our culture better. Why wouldn't we want that? Right? So I'm not talking about putting people on the dole. What I'm talking about is saying 
there is a basic level that Western and Eastern civilization has decided we as a society can offer people. Let's make it bigger and bigger until the point where we've made a society that we're proud to live in. That's why people in Norway and Copenhagen are happier than people in the United States. Because it's not because the weather's better, <laughs> right? It's because they don't spend a lot of time fretting about what they're going to do to pay for a maternity leave. And they don't spend a lot of time fretting about you know, how they're going to deal with grandpa changing, breaking his ankle. That when we can create enough of a net, we actually make the world better. And why wouldn't we do that? What is a way to tell, tell that story so that it can bloom in front of us? Right. Because when you say it, it seems very obvious to me. Right. Yeah, everybody would like this. Now, I don't know what's going to happen when if people don't have to work because, correct me if I'm wrong, but this will probably be the first time in human history where people will wake up without having to either hunt Well, actually, or that's pick not their, true. No? So a couple of things. First of all, you've interviewed 2,000 unbelievable people. How many of them did what they did because they had to work? Well, they, they weren't thinking about it as work. They were thinking about it as doing what they wanted to do. But they had do. enough money to stop. Almost all of them. Muhammad, did not, Muhammad Ali did not have to fight his last six fights. And Jack Welch did not have to go to the office the last six, 10, 15 years. Right? They did it anyway. Right. Why? Don't tell me they did it because they had to feed their family. They did it for a different reason. They did it because the act of doing this thing they did made them alive. Turns out, Marshall, Marshall Salins wrote a book, a uh, brilliant sociologist, about cavemen. Cavemen, on average, worked an hour a day. <laughs> and they spent the rest of the time lying around. How would he know? Well, there's plenty of ways you could do the archaeology and discover what the productivity of being a caveman was, right? How hard was it to find an animal? How hard was it to find some grapes? Whatever it was, right? The point is that I get the Calvinistic model that says we need a work ethic because only people who work a lot are happy and therefore they are honoring their, the image of God in which they were created and da, 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 which goes all the way back to the Protestant work ethic. But the people we hold up as our heroes, the people we say we want to be like, aren't rich retired people. No one says I want to be a rich retired person. That's a great observation. I've met so many people, but you know, we're sold a story. Yeah. And they, now I'm starting to think like a marketer. Okay. There was a company that made retirement homes somewhere in Arizona or, I, help me, another company that was, well, the story, okay. Well, the story came from Henry Ford, right? Henry Ford's big problem was, he didn't have enough workers, that you needed to get people to leave a farm where they had a, a much better quality of life, move to a dark, dank city, go to a building for 11 hours a day and be told what to do at risk of life and limb. People were dying all the time in the factory. Obey instructions, do mind-numbing work, and then go home. That's what he had to persuade everyone to do. It was a big, big problem, particularly in England because it was, the working conditions were horrible. And the solution was to invent public school. 
And public school was invented by industrialists to train kids to do well on tests, do what they were told, sit in straight rows, and put up with it for eight hours a day. That was its purpose. And so we grew up thinking, will this be on the test is the key question. We grew up thinking if we could just get to the placement office, we would get a safe job. And in the safe job, they would tell us what to do, like in school. Right? I'm not making this up. It's really clearly documented. And and with that, came a devaluation of asking questions. That's right, because industrialists don't want you to ask questions. But my point is that when the robots are the industrialists, there's not going to be anyone to ask the questions anyway. We're going to do a different job. We're going to do a job that that a factory can't do. You have like an amazingly optimistic look at it. I'm going to leave here feeling grand. Well, I'm glad that I could contribute that. (laughs) You know, I tried being a pessimist for a while, and it just wasn't working out. Like, what's the point? It doesn't help. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave you with a story. Okay. And this, this is going to show you how much you matter in the world. So there's this young man that I was telling you about. Alex. His name is Alex. And he, it's a, it's a really uh, amazing story. He is raised by immigrant parents to be a doctor because that's what immigrant parents do. Yep. And so much so that at the age of six, he's sent out on Halloween in scrubs. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's, the, that's yeah. the level we're talking about here. And he believes it. They, they sold him a story and he went along with the story. Got into USC, pre-med. All of a sudden he sits down Opens up the biology book. Can't do it. It ain't there. Yep. And now, what is he going to do? He can't go home and tell him. And he's looking up at the ceiling. Oh, my God. And then he's wondering, what is success? How do I be successful? And he starts thinking, well, how did the most successful people think when they were my age? How did Bill Gates think? And he goes to the library to try to find out. And the book that he's looking for is not there. Right. So he decides he's going to write it. Love it. So he's thinking, well, you know, all I need is some money because as soon as I call Bill Gates' office and say, I just got a few questions and this is going to help a lot of people in my generation, I'm sure Bill's going to see me. (laughs) 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 <laughs> and and so he's up at night it's the day before his biology final he's got the books and he can't look at him and on his computer screen comes a message you have free tickets to the price is right okay okay you see where this is going can't wait yeah and he's thinking you know i don't even know how to play this game but if, if I can figure out how to get up on stage and I win, then I can trade whatever I win to get the money, and then I can get to Go Bill Gates. Bill Gates, yes. So he decides he's got to make a choice, study for the final or spend the whole night hacking the prices right, learning everything he can about it, what's going to happen when he gets in, Will the producer's going to come over and going to interview him? What what does this guy look like? What does he got to do? What does he got to wear? How does he got to act? Spends a whole night 
hacking the show. Next morning he arrives, and it's, it's a long story, which hopefully you will read at one point. He manages to get on stage at The Price is Right. Okay, lucky break. Luck, uh, there was some... There was a really little skill, sure. Because okay. when he got in, he, he figured out how to get to a place where they would put him on a list. Right. And he would, instead of having one in the 300 chance, one in the eight chance. Right, okay. Okay, but then he got, once he figured that out, he got to a place where he realized, okay, now I got to figure out how to play the game. Right. Because he hadn't had time. So he says, well, I got my cell phone here. And he looks into the cell phone. And just as he looks, he's got to get on the line and security takes his cell phone. So he goes, like, or starts to go around the room asking people how to play the game. So everybody knows that he is the one kid who is, does not know how to play the game. He gets called up, and now the whole crowd is going nuts because they know he doesn't know how to play. And miraculously, he gets to the final round against the Mike Tyson <laughs> of The Price is Right, who has spent like years right. walking up and down the aisles of Costco. Right. And he beats her. It sets off this journey right. for him to go to see Bill Gates. He tries to see Warren Buffett, Lady Gaga, uh, long list of people. And he gets a book contract and he writes you an email. And I, I know from talking to you now that if somebody sends you an email, you will... <laughs> I hope you, they, yes, but I, it's a bad habit. Okay, okay. okay. Yeah, I, I don't want like a million people tomorrow. To, I appreciate that. Uh, but if if you do something along this magnitude, Seth's your guy, let's face it. <laughs> so he, he comes up with this title. It's called The Third Door. Right. And he explains what's behind it. That in his view, life is like a nightclub. Okay. And there are three doors to get in. One's the door that everybody's online to. The next door is the VIP line where you're escorted in. Sure. And the third door is a door that hardly anybody knows about. It's an alley in the back. You got to run down, right. bang on a window, crawl Save. through. And and he, he wants to know, do you, Seth, because he really admires you. Is this a good title? And you email him back. And said, well, I don't agree with your premise, but it's a good title. (laughs) (laughs) And so what happens is after that point, he meets me. Okay. All right. And basically for four years, I was working with him like three nights a week. Wow. Showing him how to write. And I mean, to his credit, he crawled through the mud for four years rewrite after rewrite because the one thing I told him at the very beginning I will help you but I will not write one word and if you ever stop when I say rewrite then I'm gone good for you and he kept going and he finished the book it's coming out in June and he called the third door it's called the third good door good title <laughs> so he emails you a while back uh, with the cover design or asking you, can I show you the cover? And he said, well, you might recall that four years ago I emailed right. you. And you sent back a great email that said, four years, question mark. 
And so I'm here to tell you that I'm the reason it took him four years to do this book. Uh, but it, it would be... I actually remember this email exchange. Okay. It, he, to, my, to, my, uh, to clarify here, the reason I wrote four years question mark right? is not because I was surprised that he had worked with you or done this. It's because he worded it like he had sent the previous email the day before. It was just like, there wasn't a, I haven't been around for four years, blah, blah, blah. It was just the question as if... <laughs> I remember oh, we the were going thread. back and forth. And I was like, so I had a Google search in my Gmail to find out what is this guy? And I was like, four years ago, that's what I wrote for. Oh, years ago. Okay. I give him huge credit for persistence. Okay, well, um, it, the uh, the point is, uh, he so admires you, and and when you're talking about having an influence, uh, you've had an amazing influence oh, on, on his life, which is why he sent the emails in the first place. <laughs> so I'm sure you're going to be getting like- I'm a, forwarding them all to you. <laughs> Here's my theory about email. You know, I've answered 145,000 emails in the last 20 years. And it has now become a bad habit Uh-oh. because it clearly doesn't scale. Here's what I encourage people to do. Email someone who isn't known. Email someone you care about. Email someone in your circle. Don't email them asking for something. Email giving them something. Email them with generous advice or insight. Email them with a thank you. That the practice of using email as a positive signaling device, not a will you help me signaling device, Give changes everything. I don't know stuff that's not in the books or my courses. I just don't. I'm not holding stuff back for this private email exchange. You're not going to get some <laughs> magic wisdom from me. What people are looking for is reassurance. And reassurance is futile. It doesn't scale. You're going to run out of reassurance. But if you start weaving together circles of people, say, I see you. Thank you for this. You're doing this well. What if you tried that? If you can do that with your circle of five or 10 or 50 and do it again and again and again, you're raising up everyone around you. And that's how you become Cal. That's how you become Seth. You don't do it by reaching out to Cal and using his time to help you with your book because that doesn't scale. It doesn't weave together the tribe that we seek. So I'm going to keep trying to answer my email, but I shouldn't because what I'm actually doing is shortchanging people who have the capacity to lead not merely to be managed. That is amazing advice. And you've lifted me with it. Thank you so much. This was super fun. You're awesome. I I walk out of here feeling optimistic. That's great. <laughs> you made me optimistic about the whole future. Totally worth the trip. Thank you, Cal, for everything you do. Oh, thank you, Seth. It's great. Cheers. That about wraps it up. Once again, would like to thank Squarespace for making all this possible. Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a new and unique website. Go to squarespace.com, enter offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and you've got a free trial. When you're ready to launch, save 10% on your first purchase of a website or domain. You're going to see yourself, and you're going to be seen in a whole new way.
I also want to thank ZipRecruiter for coming along on the journey. I tell somebody about this company every day. If you need a hire, go to ZipRecruiter.com, enter your job description, and with a single click, you'll have qualified candidates in 24 hours. Nobody else out there is working remotely like this. Fill that empty seat in your office and fast. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N. Post jobs for free. You can't do any better than that. Time for some thank yous. As usual, we got to start the thank yous with Tim Ferriss, who pushed and pushed and pushed and finally got me to do a podcast, and I couldn't be happier. Also, huge thank you to the folks at Midroll. That means you, Lex, and you, Alex, for all you do. And lose the editor. Kevin, the manager, as always, thank you for being Kevin, the manager. See you next week.